Well, good morning and welcome to our second session. How many of you had the opportunity to go to the reception last night at Rock Bottom? Did you enjoy that? I'd like to say thank you to our sponsors for that event. Uh, It was a good time, chance to get to know each other. How many of you have made a new friend or contact this week? Hopefully a friend and a contact. Fantastic. How many of you see someone in this room that you want to get to know that you haven't had a chance to talk to? Great. Good news. You still have a day and a half to make that happen. So um, we're going to have a lot of time together. But before we do that, have a chance to socialize, we've got a really exciting session uh, between now and lunch talking about the earthquake model. Our first presenter in this session is going to be uh, Murad Boafis, who is the um, leader of our earthquake team. He's going to talk to you a little bit about upcoming changes in an exciting new version of Hazus. So I'll turn the floor over to Murad. Thanks, Kevin. I mean, overall, I think my, uh, my talk will be probably lighter than the uh, heavy-duty sessions we had in the uh, hurricane model. It's, it's really mostly to whet your appetite for... Uh, for the next version of Hazus, Hazus 2.1. Uh, and I know this from the uh, little survey, uh, uh, I guess Eric did about the, uh, how many users had 2.0 that probably uh, most of you don't have it yet. Uh, the good news is obviously that the um, 2.1 builds on 2.0, so if, if you are patient and you can wait a couple months when 2.1 is released, then you get all the features in 2.0 plus the uh, 2.1 goodies, which I'm going to be talking about. Overall, uh, we uh, split the features in 2.1 in, in, in these major categories, uh, usability, technology, updates, uh, attribution functions, uh, which is on the ground motion part, uh, performance enhancements, and uh, some data updates. Usability. Uh, Hazus obviously is three models. You've got the earthquake model, you've got the hurricane model, and the flood model. Uh, and uh, I, I think you would know by now that the three models are developed by three different contractors. Uh, uh, ABS is doing the flood model, earthquake is Atkins, and uh, uh, hurricane is by IRA, and the shell is Atkins, which tries to coordinate the uh, integration between three models. It's been challenging because the, 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 the needs and the uh, usability constraints, the type of input you, you give to each model is different. Uh, and I think across the different years, there were some differences in the UI. Uh, uh, in, this, in this version, uh, we are synchronizing the UI uh, in the three models to be exactly the same across the three models. Um, we're doing that, though, only on the main level which is the main menu you see horizontally, uh, and what we call the level one menu. Uh, uh, when, when you click in and second level menu, things get different because just the models are different. Uh, uh, but anyway, for the main level menu and the level one, all the earthquake, flood, and hurricane, except probably for one exception or two, uh, they are exactly the same. No. 
The uh, large region support. Uh, this, this comes from the use of SQL Server Express. Has uh, ships, as you probably know, with SQL Server Express, which is a free version of SQL Server. Uh, the, the catch there for Microsoft is it, it, to give it to you for free, but there are some limitations. The, the main one is the database size. Uh, you cannot create a region larger than four gigabytes um, <coughs> the, in SQL Server 2005. Uh, that's fine for most users, uh, but if you are trying to create a large study region which crosses multiple counties, you're going to bump into this limitation. Uh, the uh, N2O, for example, uh, roughly speaking in the earthquake model, the, the size of the region will be around 4,000 census tracts. Uh, so any region which you create more than 4,000 census tracts, you're going to get an error down the road when you run the analysis because your database will be probably 4.1 gigabytes and you can get an error database limit reached. Uh, in Hazus 2.1, we did two things uh, to, to work around this limitation. Uh, number one, uh, we shift in database uh, versions. So 2.1 will have SQL Server 2008 instead of 2005. Uh, 2008 Express is still the free version, but Microsoft nicely this time increased the limit from 4 gigabytes to 8 gigabytes. Uh, so it still has a limitation. If you want a limited database size, you have to buy the, uh, the, the full version of SQL Server, which is roughly, uh, I would say, probably the, the $1,500 for, for, I think, five client licenses. So the, the, the cheapest one you can get is $1,500. And you can go all the way to $40,000 if you want to. But, but the, the, the Express Edition, SQL Server 2008, released to has an 8-gigabyte eight, eight limit. Uh, uh, to, which moves you off the bat to roughly a limit of 8,000 census tracts in the earthquake model. The, this option we added in, the, in what we call the large regions uh, support is to work around the limitation. Uh, there's a caveat in, in the limitation Microsoft imposed is you could have only database as large as 8 gigabytes, but you can have as many databases as you want. So you can have eight, 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 eight. So what we did in the in the earthquake model, we took one table, which is the culprit in the earthquake model, which is the earthquake damage uh, table, and broke it into three databases. So now, if you enable this option, your study region, instead of being in one database, will be in four databases. Uh, uh, the uh, the size practically triples your limit from eight thousand tracks to twenty four thousand tracks. But there's a caveat in, in the sense that the, uh, the, the performance will suffer a little bit because you are doing uh, what we call cross-database queries. Uh, so this option is not enabled by default. Uh, in 2.1, you run exactly the way you did before, but if you run in multiple uh, or big regions, you have to enable the option explicitly. You're going to gain some performance penalties, but at least you can run your region if you wanted to. On the technology updates, uh, we group these as uh, uh, mostly what we do for uh, ArcGIS and the operating systems. Uh, uh, SP2 came out in, in ArcGIS 10, so that's supported in 2.1. Uh, we are uh, still supporting Windows XP 32-bit. Uh, we'd, we'd like to drop it. I mean, it's a pretty old operating system, and I think a lot of users are still using it. Uh, and, and mainly our client who's paying the bills, FEMA, is still uh, heavily dependent on, on Windows XP. So, uh, so we're keeping that in there. Uh, we're not really pushing anything in you. We just test for it, uh, sort of like uh, speakly, just testing to make sure it works, but, but nothing in you in there. Yeah. 
uh, we supporting the new service pack one of Windows 7, 32 bit. And the big, the big uh, update in 221 is we are, for the first time, uh, compatible with the 64 bit version. Uh, the, how many people wanted the 64 bit version? Exactly. This, this is by far one of the uh, highly uh, requested features, and, uh, uh, and it's been around for a while. Uh, we could not do it in 2.0, it just it was too complicated. Uh, but anyway, it's coming up in, in uh, 2.1. Uh, the, uh, the support is, uh, I don't want to go too much to the technical details, but it is still a 32-bit application. Hiasis is still a 32-bit application running in emulation mode in 64-bit. Uh, we cannot really create yet a 64-bit application of Hazis because number one is too costly, uh, and number two is because uh, ArcGIS itself is not a 64-bit application. So we have to wait for ESRI to, to move to that platform. I don't know if it's going to happen in the next version or not uh, to, to be, to be uh, on the same 64-bit uh, platform. The uh, ground motion. Uh, this is, uh, uh, it's already work we started last year. Uh, uh, we didn't really complete it, but for now it's, it's coming up uh, in the 2.1. The, uh, there is a major rewrite of the attribution functions in 2.1 as far as the, the ground motion model. Uh, it is, uh, it's called the NGA attribution function. It's, NGA stands for uh, uh, next generation. Uh, Obviously, it doesn't sound right when they say NGA attenuation functions because the A is attenuation functions. Uh, the, the, anyway, it's the latest and greatest from the UIGS. Um, uh, number one, uh, we put in the new models in there as far as the calculation goes. We are increasing the list and capabilities. Uh, I think we're going from about like 20 to about 40 attenuation functions on the model. Uh, quickly going through them. Uh, Cascadia. Uh, what we call the cocktail attenuation functions. The attenuation function, there's, like, there's an attenuation function which is one by itself, and the cocktail is a combination of other primary uh, attenuation functions. We call them roughly cocktail attenuation functions. Some specific ones for Northwest, Alaska, and Hawaii. Uh, uh, and uh, so these are coming in. Um, the uh, main side, side effect of the uh, attenuation functions is that the results will be different. Uh, I think overall, the numbers will be on the lower side. So the new estimates coming from this model is the, if you compare 2.0 to 2.1, you're going to notice roughly that probably between, uh, given the same scenario, uh, you're going to get less results. Uh, uh, depends roughly probably 5, 10%, 25% sometimes. So that's, that's coming in the model. Right. Distributed analysis, uh, is another feature uh, which is just in the uh, function just for the earthquake model so far. Uh, it allows you to take an analysis and break it across any number of machines. Uh, so if you have uh, an analysis which takes 20 hours uh, on one machine, <coughs> you could basically create have any number of machines, 5, 6, 2, 10, uh, as long as they are networked either via switch or peer-to-peer, -peer, doesn't matter. Uh, and by enabling this option, has in the earthquake model, we take the analysis, uh, create the region, uh, break it automatically across five, six machines, run the analysis on each. When the analysis is done, gets the notification, pulls back the results, and puts them on what we call the master machine, the, the, the primary machine. Uh, typical analysis like running for county uh, LA, for example, uh, with full options, takes uh, probably around four hours on one machine. 
with five machines takes 20 minutes. Uh, so the, the, the performance uh, gains are substantial. Uh, this is, again, a very advanced option. When, when you install 2.1, there's really no menu in there or option for it. It's, it's all controlled by configuration file. It's a text file. You have to edit to say, here are my machines, here's the machine names, here's the IP addresses, and you turn on the option, and then it automatically works in the background. We have one data update. Uh, unfortunately, it's not the one I guess a lot of you are, were expecting. Uh, we do not have yet the Census 2010 data update in 2.1 uh, for uh, for several reasons. Uh, but we have an update for what we call the occupancy mapping schemes. Uh, how many people are familiar with the occupancy mapping schemes? Okay. It, it is it, it is probably one of the complex things in, in HASIS, but uh, I mean roughly what it is, easy definition: the occupancy mapping scheme maps your occupancies to your building types. I mean, that's roughly what it is. In uh, HASIS, we, uh, we ship with uh, default mapping schemes at the most three per state. I mean, California gets three mapping schemes, for example. And, and, and roughly, they were designed across what we call, according to the NEHAP zones. It says, like, if, if the code says that this county is supposed to have high design level construction, then the occupancy mapping scheme, the default one anyway, is uh, high designable. Uh, but realistically, if, if the code says so, it doesn't mean that the construction is high design level. Uh, so so what, what we are updating in this, this new data is that the occupancy mapping schemes, as far as design levels are concerned, reflect the built-in the, the built inventory and not really what the code says. Uh, we didn't go that far just because of time constraints. We still have these uh, this, the same number of defaults. Like, I mean, we could have really, if we had more time, we could have created a default mapping scheme one for each county, for example, because we had the data. Uh, but we didn't. It's, it, it is still just two. basically California gets still three, uh, three, uh, three mapping schemes, and some of them have one, but mostly three as a maximum. Uh, this is just the detail of the uh, distributions we have, which drives the table, the new percentages. And if, if you guys want more technical details, I can really explain how, what goes into the system. Obviously, HADS is not only the earthquake model. Uh, the hurricane and flood also seen some major updates in 2.1. I think Jeff already talked about them in the, in the hurricane session, uh, which is the new damage and loss uh, for the use of functions for the essential facilities and the uh, historical storm update. Uh, the flood model, uh, which probably coming next, the, the, there is uh, analysis optimization. Definitely, the flood model will run faster overall uh, in 2.1 than in 2.0. Uh, uh, level 1 automation to allow you to run the analysis for level 1 from beginning to end as, as one, one, one command. Uh, there's an update to the uh, Manning's uh, coefficient roughness factors using the land use, land cover data. Uh, and there's some uh, big hydrology improvements specifically that uh, went back to the AL analysis. Uh, for example, the 2 and 5 return periods have been removed. Uh, the, uh, some 25-year uh, uh, return periods have been inserted, and there was some optimization in the analysis. And, and the AL option is coming back in 2.1 uh, while it was removed in 2.0. Uh, future trends, uh, 2.1 is, is, is we started the beta testing. Uh, we expect to be, uh, for the public version to be released around probably the uh, September 30th, last week, uh, last, last week of September, which is the end of our contract anyway. So th this future trend is really post-September. Uh, uh, I, I think overall, if, if, if we have to say where hazards needs to be in the next, next few years, uh, these are the major categories. Um, number one, uh, 
uh, major uh, methodology updates across three models, earthquake, hurricane, and flood. Uh, most of the methodologies uh, in the model now are, uh, are five-year-old probably, sometimes ten-year-old methodologies. Uh, when I say methodology, that's a ground motion, that's your damage function, that's, for example, your casualty model, that's your direct economic loss. So all these are really due for major updates. Uh, updates to the data, since 2010, obviously it's highly requested. We didn't do it because the data wasn't there yet. It's not complete from the Census Bureau. So, uh, the, so this is something we definitely will be, will be there. And the, the Census update is not really just you put in the new demographics. That's you getting the new boundaries, getting the new blocks, the new whatever the blocks which have died, the blocks, census blocks which have erupted uh, was, were created in a sense. And, and all the occupancy mapping schemes, the demographics, a bunch of stuff. So it's a lot of work. Uh, software re-architecture, this is just to move probably the program to the, to the next generation. The, the, the current architecture is written in 2002, uh, which is uh, COM, C++ stuff, which was, which was great back then, but it's not really great anymore. I mean, there's, there's better things how to do software development, so it has needs to, uh, to catch up. Uh, integration with the web, it's, it's something obviously which is again uh, reflects the new, the new way of doing things in, in the computer world. Uh, has it as it is now, other than a few features for downloading like DEM, whatever, it doesn't talk to the web that much. Uh, it, it's, it's really 100% desktop based application. Uh, we see a lot of potential for uh, getting integration with the web as far as getting the data, as far as exchanging the data, as far as sharing data regions, for example, as far as uh, uh, something replacing the, all the communication across users as far as, for example, working from a common database instead of local SQL Server database. So there's, there's a lot of potential there. Uh, Multi-threading is just also the, the uh, to try to catch up on the performance in hazards. I mean, the, the models, uh, some models better than others, just take hours to run. Uh, uh, Multi-threading is just for the software to take advantage of the multiple CPUs which are on your machine. I mean, everybody now has a computer with, with three, four, uh, eight CPUs. Uh, Afonchi has this is just using one of them. Uh, uh, Multi-threading allows you to, to basically, if you have eight CPUs, it's like you have eight machines. 64-bit uh, support, I talked about that already. Uh, this is for the program to have access to more memory. Uh, uh, unfortunately, we are dependent on ArcGIS in there, so once ArcGIS moves to 64-bit, we can do the same thing. Uh, and obviously, many, many, many others. Uh, uh, I think that's, that's my slide, and that sounds good. I'm seems to be uh, two minutes ahead of schedule, so you want to take questions now or later? I don't know. I can't take questions. I have two minutes in my slot, so uh, any questions? Yes? Uh, yes, uh, I have a couple of questions. Mm. Thank you. Uh, I have a, a couple of questions. The first one is regards to the uh, possibility of including the correlation effect in the losses estimation. I mean, as you know, mm. when we wish to produce the risk curve, the PML curve, in order to have uh, future ideas of uh, financial mitigation. Uh, that curve should be expressed in terms of probabilities and not necessarily in terms of the emotions. That, as you know, it's important to do the effect of the correlation. Are you considering the first question? Are you considering to provide this for the next development? This is question number one. Okay. And question number two, I'm working with the Geological Survey of Canada, and the 
order also to consider possible uh, mitigation strategies at the, the federal level or at the provincial level or at the municipal level. It's important to have an idea of how we aggregate the losses, uh, assuming that, for instance, the municipal level is going to take that part of the risk, the provincial level is going to be able to take the other part of the risk, and the federal government is going to take a different part of the risk, the total risk. Uh, to produce something like that, it, it, it is required that initially the software allows you to say what's the kind of coinsurance, similar to insurance, or a huge deductible, but that should be done by individual risk and not by the total risk, as you already know. Okay. So I don't know where you are considering something similar to that. Okay. Re regarding the, fir the, the first question, uh, the the uh, the uncertainty into the model uh, has been considered for a while. Uh, I think since day one, um, considering the, the the goal of the software, it has been decided that just dealing with what we call the mean level. I mean, all the numbers you get in has is what we call basically means. Uh, so you don't you don't get the probabilities and the certainties, and you don't get you don't get, for example, my losses will be between 10 million and 15 million. So that's not all there. Uh, so this is really from a usability perspective. It was a decision made by the committees just to go with the mean level and take off the uncertainty out of the equation. This does not preclude the idea that when we talk about these major methodology updates down the road, that probably that should that should be included. Uh, that the uncertainty has to be a key factor uh, because it, it comes all the time. It says the hazard is great. You click a button and you get the results, and everybody says. Uh, are these numbers validated? Are they correct? I mean, it's like, uh, uh, and, and the fact that we give you the mean and sometimes it's misleading because uh, there is a lot of uncertainty. And, and, and when you do the uncertainty, for example, if you look at the loss at the end, the loss is a combination of like five, six analysis modules. Each one has its own certainty. You start with the ground motion uncertainty, the damage has uncertainty, and you go down to the losses. So if you combine all these, you get this this big, really, range, really, and that's what this answer probably should be in has. So your losses will not be 15.25, it should say it's between X and X, or it gives you a number with a probability of, of, of appearance. So that's probably, I would think, it's, it's, it's highly likable to be implementing the methodology updates we're talking about for the next generation of hazards. Uh, as far as the uh, second question, uh, FEMA being the client, usually they don't care about the uh, insurance and the different tiers of insurers and who's taking the risk. So I think the probability of that happening probably a little bit smaller. Uh, uh, this is uh, something which could be uh, uh, implemented as probably post-processor, back-end analysis engine to Hazus if, if the data is exposed. But one thing, for example, we say maybe the next version of Hazus should have, should have something which we call application programming interface, an API, which allow you as a developer, if you know a little bit with the documentation and the help, they gain into sort of hook in into the core engine of, of Hazus and get the nitty-gritty input intermediate results and do whatever you do with them. So if that's possible in the next version of Hazus, probably an independent uh, entrepreneur can get hooked into the data and build the different tiers and you know, start including the deductibles and who's taking the risk and who's taking the first tier and the second tier. Off the bat, I don't think this is really going to come in Hazus because Hazus being a female program, insurance and who's paying for the, you know, taking the risk usually is not something FEMA cares about. So. So, but I see it as an option that someone else could add to the system. We're, we'll go ahead and take uh, additional questions at the end of the session, mm -hmm. but so keep moving on. Thank mm -hmm. you, Mark. Okay, you're welcome. Appreciate it. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah.
folks getting set up with this presentation. Uh, you know, I think we all really appreciate the hard work of Rodney Scott. would not be here today or not with our hard efforts. So definitely appreciate that. Take the opportunity that you have this week to interact directly with the developers of the software. Uh, I've had the pleasure of working with them on the education front for knowing them for more than a decade. And my experience has been they always are looking for ways to make the technology better. It is for us that they do this. So take that opportunity to share your ideas because that's what this conference is all about. Uh, our second presenter this morning is going to speak with us about the national level exercise. How many of you have any involvement? How many of you have heard of the New Madrid earthquake? Is that news to anybody? Our, our good friend Doug Bash here is the FEMA Region 8's office. Uh, an earthquake expert in Hassas for many, many years. He's going to talk to us a little bit about the national level exercise. Thanks, Doug. Okay, thanks. Yeah, this was a, a big opportunity for Hazus to use it at a, um, um, a really high scale. The national level exercises, um, this is actually the first one in which a, a natural disaster was considered. Um, these used to be called top-offs for top official, but um, they're in LEs now. The next one will be a, a cyber terror exercise, um, but then after that we're back to hurricane, so we may have another opportunity to uh, participate in the national level exercise. Um, I first want to talk about the, what we exported and used in the national level exercise was, was from something that actually started here in Washington. And this is where we integrate the USGS ShakeMap products. We have the best ground motions that we're using in our, in our scenario. Um, and then we produce a suite of products that have become fairly standardized since uh, over, over the last few years. Um, we supported a sound shake exercise here in 2008 with these same products and learn, learn lessons of how to best display data and um, some of the new uh, um, um, uh, ways to display data that's very important. And developed a suite of uh, 20 scenarios here in Washington. We followed that with um, a, a suite of 21 scenarios in, in Utah. Um, and then uh, a Nevada project too, based on the suite of scenarios. And all of these demo projects had improvements to the inventory. We learned some lessons on, on how to improve those. And we improved the inventory nationally um, for especially the central facilities and some of the HSIP improvements that I'll talk about that we also use for NLE in the bigger um, Mason or catastrophic planning projects. So one of the big improvements nationally um, is integration of HSIP, the Homeland Security Infrastructure Protection Data Set. Um, this was developed after 9-11, and um, there's, been a, there's a significant investment from DHS every year in improving this inventory. It's limited right now in terms of uh, licensing, and um, we're, we're able to share it um, with uh, disaster eligibility and for anybody who has an HSIP license. Um, and there's a new product called HSIP Freedom that we're hoping to share a lot more openly. But it allows, allowed us to improve nationally the uh, essential facility and critical infrastructure um, data sets. And uh, we also improved with that some of the general building stock inventory and the occupancy categories for hospitals, um, police, fire. Um, you know, so, so COM6, EDU1 and 2 were improved. And um, Gov1 and Gov2 were improved for the, at the general building stock level. HSIP has, has it's, it's now improved in terms of um, uh, completeness. It's a standard across the emergency management community where everybody's using HSIP both inside and outside of HASIS, so it allows some common data um, to be used. But it, 
it, it has a gap in actually giving us the vulnerability attributes that we need and has us. So it'll give us a great location for that hospital, often on structure, you know, no longer geocoded and in the street, which is important for, for the flood model to have that, that degree of accuracy. But um, it doesn't give us when that hospital was built or the seismic design level or some of these vulnerability attributes. And we've been working with them and ho uh, um, hopefully um, are, are going to be adding some attributes that would be helpful. So those demonstration projects went into an SOP. Um, and I presented this last year in, in Indianapolis um, and talked about the projects and the, and the, the, the map templates we developed with, with URS. Um, and, uh, and others. So this documents how we take those results from HAZIS and produce these, these standardized products, um, which we exercised in NLE. Um, a little bit of background on the hazard for the New Madrid region. It sounds like many of you are fam already familiar with it. Um, NLE was also picked for, uh, for 2011 because it was the 200-year anniversary of the first, uh, uh, first one of the, the sequence occurred in 1811, December 1811. And it occurred on um, three different systems. You see the southernmost system is called, called the southwest segment. That red line is the real thrust segment. And then the, the, the northeast segment as well. So we modeled three 7.7s um, and then chose the southernmost segment to use for the actual NLE exercise, the southwest segment, a magnitude 7.7. .7. And that had the most in terms of losses. Um, it impacts Memphis greatly, catastrophic impacts in Memphis. Um, so of those three segments, it actually had the most losses. Ground motions reached St. Louis, but not at that same catastrophic level as, as we hit in Memphis. Um, liquefaction was critical in NLE and, and, and actually modeling New Madrid. Um, this is the, area, the biggest area of liquefaction potential in the world um, today. You can still see sand boils from 1811, 200 years later, around New Madrid, that picture in the upper left. And the picture in the, in the lower right is the modern-day analog for that. This, that's the Christchurch event where we had extensive liquefaction and flooding-induced liquefaction, um, extensive losses as a result of liquefaction. It floods the entire potable water system and sewer system with sediment, floods everybody's basements with sediment, um, and introduces a lot of damage. Um, uh, into the losses, and in fact, doubles our losses for the New Madrid scenario. So liquefaction was critical in incorporating, and it, it, it took a while to get a good liquefaction susceptibility product, but I'll show that and how we led up to it. So leading up to NLE, um, actually first started in 2005 when um, the USGS first produced the shake maps for these scenarios. We demonstrated how um, we, we would get credible results and has this with the shake map input for these 7.7s. Um, um, this happened to be just before Katrina struck. And um, when Katrina struck, one of the big lessons in the post-Katrina Emergency Management Reform Act was that we, we were doing Hurricane Pam before Katrina struck. That was an exercise scenario based on a, a hurricane striking uh, New Orleans. Um, but it wasn't an especially well-funded activity. Um, there wasn't a lot of high-level participation in it, um, but the lesson learned and incorporated in the post-Katrina Reform Act was that, that this catastrophic planning is critically important. Um, we can have credible scenarios before these events and learn from them. Um, so since then, we've had a significant amount of funding that, that's focused on catastrophic planning, and the first one picked was our 
was our New Madrid, um, uh, New Madrid event. Since that time, we've done them in, in I think, all the FEMA regions now. We're doing Cascadia here in Regions 9 and 10. Um, and in my region, we're doing Salt, the Salt Lake segment of the Wasatch Fault in Salt Lake. And um, we've done Hurricane and some others that uh, have, and they all have used HAZUS to, to some degree, usually a pretty great degree. So one of the biggest uses of HAZUS now is to support the, these catastrophic planning efforts. Um, the catastrophic planning effort uh, for New Madrid actually started shortly after Katrina and uh, was led, the modeling part of it was led by the Mid May Center, the Mid-America Earthquake Center, with some of the downstream modeling from Sandia. But they heavily used HASIS. Back then it was MR2. Um, they utilized all of our data improvements in integrating HSIP. Um, did some work with the occupancy schemes. And there were two phases to that product, project. First was the phase one. And then phase two was enhanced. And I think one of the best products to come out of this overall thing was the work done by the CUSEC state geologists. So all eight state geologists got together and worked out um, a, a regional liquefaction susceptibility map and worked out a uh, regional soil <coughs> sorry worked out a regional soils amplification map and um, that's going to help everybody going forward for any scenarios any future events not just a repeat of this event but a Wabash event in Indiana Illinois East St. Louis event so other events are benefiting from the, these hazard data improvements that were done as a part of this project. One of the um, other issues with, with the catastrophic planning was eight, all eight states participating and it really wanted to see some catastrophic impacts. And I showed those three segments and the three events and they don't all get catastrophic impacts if you take those one at a time. So in the catastrophic planning, they combined um, all three events into kind of one major event as a as not just a worst case scenario, but for worst case impacts in all eight of those states. But when we started to, to, to develop for NLE, we really wanted to focus on the response phase and what's gonna happen in those first 72 hours. So to be realistic for that, we, as I mentioned, we picked just the one segment. Um, part of what we did was exercise the GeoConOps, um, has this ConOps as part of this, but DHS has this major GeoConOps of how we use GIS and modeling data in disasters, and this was a good opportunity to exercise that. I was part of this um, DOLUS control group, this uh, or the, the MCC, the Master Control Cell. It was a group of about 400 of us out by the DOLUS airport um, in a hotel, and it was a 24-7 operation. We were designing the injects and uh, feeding those to all the, all the players. Um, the injects included uh, media, the injects included all the suite of USGS products that we would typically get, and uh, we, we wanted to make sure that it was distributed in a, in, a, in a good timeline as well, realistic timeline. So here was our timeline that we used for NLE. And uh, one of the important things, and I'll, I'll show what, the, what those products actually look like, is in a, in a real earthquake event, um, shake maps are produced pretty quickly. So within about 20 minutes, you get an initial shake map. But what they know in that shake map is the epicenter, you know, magnitude location. Um, and they're really considered a point source shake map. It takes them an hour or two to figure out which fault um, caused that event. And when you include the fault on these big events, you, you can get a big difference in the shake map. And in this event, it was a big difference because you'd have a point source 
Um, and when he included the actual, wow, you sure? When you when you included the uh, when you included the actual um, uh, finite fault or the fault source in the shake map, you really changed the distribution of ground motion. And in this case, you brought the ground motion closer to Memphis, and so the swing and losses was dramatic. Um, and then operating hazards was was a chore in this event because we had eight affected states and eight states to run it on. Um, so here's what I mean by the point source shake map. This is coupled with the USGS pager product, which gives us an alert level and, um, and a, a, a first flush at some losses. This is what the finite fault looks like. So you see the ground motions get a lot closer to Memphis. Memphis gets touched by the, by the red and, and orange and violent ground motions. So it produces the losses there. Um, so this is the ShakeMap website, and this is where we download the data that we need to run Hazus with. And there's a Hazus.zip file all, uh, all there and established for us. But we, we've expanded that now where we use some of the other products from, from the ShakeMap website um, in a new tool that uh, Eduardo Escalano developed for us called EQ Export. Um, this is an example of some of the reports that are that are that are exported from that, and I'll, I'll show some more and get into that in a little more detail. We also export um, all the all the results directly from the big has a SQL table into compressed geo databases with map templates, all, all automated and designed, and linked to those. This tool is free, and I'd be happy to share with with anyone. We've already updated it to run and has this 2.0. Um, and it also produces a suite of KMLs that we can view in Google Earth, and you see that example on the bottom. Um, this is what the interface looks like. And uh, a large part of what we learned from these dem demonstration projects was the need to really translate results into, into what those users could understand. So those users could be the Urban Search and Rescue Task Force, and we'd give them numbers of the number of uh, collapse structures to anticipate. But we'd marry up the, or crosswalk the hazardous building types to the USAR team types. So the type one teams for USAR were assigned the reinforced concrete and steel and the difficult to handle building types. The type two, a little lesser, and type three were the URMs, and type four were the wood frame and manufactured housing. So we, we married that up, but there's parameters in EQ export where you could change those or look at uh, um, uh, different assumptions made associated with that for the USAR for the USAR needs. Um, we also have a building inspection needs analysis: how many inspectors we need after the event, and we also have some more refined logistics analysis for water potable water needs. Um, so the, the interface looks like this: you select your study region. Um, it also uses, importantly, too, we wanted to maintain consistency with the USGS ShakeMap products as a base layer ground motion base layer in, in these hazards products. And so we wanted the symbology to be the same as they use in ShakeMap. That's really become the standard, um, and, it, and it's so prevalent. So we wanted consistency where, where the ground motion and layer file looked the exact same. Um, so this takes about 20 minutes to run, this export tool. And as I mentioned, it grabs all the data from the SQL table. It links things importantly. So often when you're in, in the program, you export results, and you, you have to go back and join it with the inventory so you could get the names of those facilities and things like that. But all that's automatically done. Um, there's, there's almost 30 um, uh, map templates as part of that. And um, 
the, these KMZs are very popular. In fact, in the Master Control Center, it was all the KMZs that were up on, on all the screens, and those were the things that were heavily used because not everybody has GIS, not everybody has a capability, but uh, everybody has access to Google Earth. Um, and a large part of this was also publishing um, these results in flex viewers. Um, at FEMA, behind the firewall, we have three flex viewers. Saber is our, our, our major headquarters effort. Uh, region 4 has Storm, and Region 10 has Erupt. And um, it's been a big movement in FEMA to have flex viewers and common operating data, and uh, publishing to this was important. Outside the FEMA firewall, we published, uh, ESRI helped us publish um, the hazardous results to a flex viewer that everybody had access to. Um, ESRI also uh, instituted a new shake map feed, so anybody in all of our customers that, that are running flex viewers and, and rest services can point now to, to ESRI shake map feed. Um, here's another export of the KML. I wanted to show that Eduardo really fine-tuned these, and you could turn off and on the legend and disclaimers and uh, have, have visibility underneath that. This is what one of the mapping schemes looks like. This is the one that develops and analyzes the number of inspectors that are needed, and that becomes part of the template. Um, there are the report outputs, example from USAR. Um, we did some new demographic reports that were, that were under demand for this exercise. Um, and all the demographic data are in HAZAS, so it's, uh, it's beneficial for that. We identified mitigation opportunities where possible, and one is uh, the unreinforced masonry. If, if we didn't have unreinforced masonry in the New Madrid region, our losses would have been about 90% uh, you know, of our losses uh, in terms of casualties came from these unreinforced masonry buildings, and it's because we have almost half a million exposed to this scenario. Okay. Um, so going forward, uh, this, this was a great experience for ShakeMap users that, um, that didn't have any experience using ShakeMap. So a lot of GIS folks from, from state agencies and federal agencies that are, work that region weren't that familiar with ShakeMap products. Like when we do an event or an exercise in California, they've all, they're already familiar with the product. So they identified a lot of improvements for us. We added projection files now to these uh, zip files. Um, the FTDC metadata is actually um, separate and, and downloadable from ShakeMap, but now we're, we've in, or we're integrating it directly into the zip file. Um, a layer file will now be part of that zip file, so you could upload the, uh, or open the shape.zips and they'll all be symbolized and colored the same. Um, in addition to Esri publishing a, uh, a ShakeMap feed, actually mining this um, ShakeMap site and pulling the, the, the grid XML and publishing a feed, the USGS Natural Hazard Support System will do that. And then Eduardo also updated the ShakeMap to Hazus Utility to work in, in Hazus 2.0, so that's available now to share. And um, so going forward, we have a, our next big pilot is uh, in New England. It'll be another suite of scenarios, but some improvements that are, that are needed for that area, hopefully we'll be able to tackle the census. We're already benefiting from the automation of map, map templates. And this is in conjunction with a bigger USGS pro project in which instead of just doing a few shake map scenarios here and there, there's this new earthquake scenario project. And that's, that's intended to de-aggregate the entire USGS national hazard map. So all the potential sources that are part of our USGS hazard map will be part of this library. And uh, all the products that we could develop from Hazus with automated tools would be part of the library as well. And that's it. Thanks.
Thank you. Can you hear me in the back? Yay! Okay. Um, I'm going to talk to you today about a project that was conducted last year, actually prior to the Japan earthquake, uh, but it certainly got a lot more attention after March 11th of this year. Um, this is a project that was conducted for Pacific Gas and Electric, and as you can see by the logo soup here down the right, uh, we had a lot of support and participation from a number of organizations. Uh, the geosciences folks at Pacific Gas and Electric are very active. Uh, they're doing a lot of work mapping offshore faults. Um, the nuclear power plant and potential earthquake issues are a very important issue to them. And this project was supporting one of their ongoing efforts, which I'll tell you about in just a second. Um, in addition to our firm, we also had Fugro, William, Lettuce, and Associates doing our hazard mapping because we're big fans of making friends, Kevin and having people who know what they're doing generate the inputs that are required for the study. Um, our information was fed to another contractor who was actually uh, doing evacuation time estimate updates, which we'll get to in a second as well. And we had the participation of the emergency management of the county because clearly um, the nuclear power plant is a big issue for the emergency managers in San Luis Obispo County. And our efforts were intended not only to support the emergency evacuation planning, but to give the county some products that they could use beyond just for that purpose. So all of our study regions were countywide and with the intent that it could support their mitigation planning and response planning as well. So um, what I'm going to talk to you about very briefly is an overview of the project. I'll talk to you about our hazard data talk to you about all of our inventory data updates, and then show you some of the results, and of course, along the way, talk a little bit about the HAZUS challenges that we encountered. Because this is what happens when you use HAZUS in a little bit of a different way than it was intended, and use some of the modules that haven't really been um, exercised as much. So the point of our project was to support an update to the Diablo Canyon Power Plant's emergency evacuation timing study. Uh, we wanted to be able to use state-of-the-art ground motions and loss modeling techniques because the last time um, this particular issue was addressed was a number of years ago. And of course, that meant using houses and using shake maps. Uh, the objective of the study was to provide um, estimates of both bridge and roadway damage within the power plant's emergency planning zone. So this is not countywide. This is the immediate area around the plant whereby if there isn't any kind of issue, these are the folks that have to get out. Um, and in this figure on the right, it's not the entire area that's shaded. It's sort of this little squiggly thing in the middle. So when you see the figures further on, it's not going to be this entire area. It'll be just a smaller area. Um, and the idea was to use a magnitude 7.2 scenario on the Hosbury Fault and generate information for the evacuation planners to incorporate into the transportation models. 
Um, some study features, uh, the HAZIS version we were using was MR4. Most of the work was done last fall, so this was before some of the newer versions came out. We were able to leverage enhanced building inventory data that had been built from assessors' data um, under previous funding from the state to demonstrate the methodology by which that can be done. We were able to engage the participation of folks at the USGS to build us a custom shake map. Um, and as I mentioned, we got detailed liquefaction and landslide susceptibility data from one of the other um, geotechnical engineering contractors. And again, the results were all fed to the evacuation planner for their use in updating the time estimates. So the event that we're looking at is a magnitude 7.2 on the Hajgri Fault. Um, this is a quick shot of the shake map. The plant itself is the little purple star. I don't think I have a pointer. Um, we ended up using the 84th percentile ground motions because we are really looking for uh, a planning event. We're not looking for a design event, we're looking for a planning event. So we used the 84th percentile ground motions. Um, our ground motion was actually NGA attenuation relationship based, uh, implemented by the USGS for us. And in the end, our ground motions were consistent with, or a little bit higher than, what they had been using in their 1981 study, uh, despite the fact that we're using NGA relationships that we selected a, the 84th percentile ground motions because it's a planning case. So as I mentioned, we did have um, the Fugro, William, Lettuce and Associates folks generating liquefaction and landslide susceptibility data. Getting in in the beginning with them made it very easy. We fed them the categories that Hazus wanted, so when they generated the maps, they were able to reflect our information and make our lives much easier. Um, what you can see here is this smaller emergency planning zone, and the very bright red shows you the area subject to liquefaction, so you can see we have a significant issue up around Morro Bay. Um, of areas of very high liquefaction susceptibility. As well, we have some beach communities down to the south, which also are subject to liquefaction. And the idea is if there's any kind of reason to evacuate the plant, all of those people have to get out, and they're all going to be going east, which is not necessarily going to be easy if you've got a lot of liquefaction. Uh, landslide susceptibility was also mapped uh, by FUBRO both for wet and dry conditions, and there's a big difference in the landslide susceptibility in this area if it's wet or dry. This is the dry map, but as you can see here on the right and the left, we have a much bigger issue if we have a wet season. Um, and as you, you'll see in the results as well, it does make a big difference, and we wanted to be able to capture the range of impacts in the case of landslide. If you're familiar with HAZIS, you know that the default bridge data is pretty good. It's derived from the Federal Highway Administration's 2001 National Bridge Inventory, but it's now, it was 2010, and we wanted to be able to reflect mitigation, replacement, and new construction. Uh, we got great cooperation from both Caltrans and the county public work folks who were able to give us information on ret their retrofit programs. Um, 22 of the state bridges had been retrofit, five of the county bridges had been retrofit, and eight of the county bridges had been replaced. All of this information was uh, imported into the database to allow for a better picture of the losses. And in fact, the city itself had built a new bridge, which didn't appear in the database, so we had to go through the exercise of adding it. Uh, but in the end, I think we had a better picture of the bridge inventory than was there to begin with. Um, for roadways, we had a bit of a challenge. If you're familiar with the hazardous default data, you know there's uh, major highways only. We are really looking at evacuation for a small area, and we wanted to be able to consider streets, 
uh, you know, two-lane roads, surface streets, all of that information. Um, as you can see, the top graphic is just the default highway data. The middle graphic shows you what's in Esri's data kit for this area. Um, we were very fortunate that that level of detail is available from Esri. We use that information and port it into Hazus. And then within the plant itself, within the Diablo Canyon Power Plant, because we're also concerned with making sure that the folks at the plant can evacuate out if need be, um, none of that information appears in the public database, but the, the geotechnical contractors had done enough work on the plant that they had a street centerline database. So we had to stitch together these three different levels of roadway information to create a database within Hazus that would allow us to do our evacuation planning. One of the challenges we ran into um, was the fact that the roadway geodatabase import it did not work in MR4. Um, luckily, we still had an installation of MR3 floating around, and it was functional. Um, so we were able to create the custom roadway information in a study region in MR3 and then export it and get it into MR4. Um, so sometimes it's good to keep your old versions of Hazus around. Little tip. Uh, with regard to buildings, as I mentioned, we replaced the general building stock inventory data with one that had been built from assessor's data. Um, under funding from the state in a previous project. Uh, interestingly, in the urban counties in California, if you do the same replacement, you find that the default data uh, underestimates the exposure. Uh, San Luis Obispo is a little bit more of a sleepy bedroom kind of community, does not have as much uh, infrastructure, it's not quite as urban, and we found that the default data actually overestimated the exposure, particularly in the industrial category. Um, they had it way wrong. So that was very good for uh, give, give it a better sense of reality and make it more realistic to the, to the, the county folks who are going to be using this data as well. Um, and the guidelines that tell you how it was that we do this uh, replacement from assessor data is something that's been publicly available on the web for quite a long time, and the link is provided in the presentation. So what happens to San Luis Obispo County in this large Hosgri event? Well, if you focus first on the, the left-hand column, which is damage just due to ground shaking, this is countywide. You can see that we've got more than $300 million worth of building damage. Uh, when you add the building-related direct economic losses, it comes up to about 450. Uh, things that are of interest for evacuation planning perhaps are buildings in the complete damage state. Where buildings may collapse, they may block roadways. You're going to have emergency services personnel trying to get in. There's about 70 of those. Okay, If you look in the columns to the right, this is when we start adding in the information about liquefaction and landslide in that emergency planning zone. So the difference between the two sets of numbers is exclusively due to additional damage due to ground failure in those zones. Um, in, under dry conditions, our building damage goes from 300 to 360 million. Under wet conditions, it comes up to 470 million. These are still low because we're only looking at liquefaction in that small portion of the county. But it gives you an idea of how important these secondary hazards can be to building damage. Uh, more importantly for evacuation, if you look at the buildings in the complete damage state, shaking countywide produces 70. The addition of liquefaction and landslide in the planning zone bumps that up to 200 in dry conditions and as many as 400 in wet conditions. So this could be an additional response issue that's going to feed into any sort of evacuation that's planned. Just to refresh your memory, um, Hazus roadway damage states, uh, your roads aren't damaged under ground shaking. Generally, it's just ground failure that's going to impact your ability to use them. 
And it's really a function of how much the ground moves underneath them. Um, so if you remember our detailed map of roadways, uh, we've been able to summarize what sort of ground failure uh, impact might be felt on those roadways in the county. Uh, you'll see at the top, there's a very large number of roadways that are undamaged, primarily because we don't have liquefaction and landslide outside of the emergency planning zone. Um, under wet conditions, as much as 5% of the roadways could suffer extensive or complete damage. This, again, is going to be an issue for uh, emergency response and evacuation. And even under dry conditions, we've got about 50 kilometers of roadways that could be extensively broken up by the ground failure. Uh, you don't have to read every word on this slide. We were, we were using this information to present to the folks at, at the plant. We wanted to make sure we didn't leave anything out. The idea is um, bridges in the extensive or complete damaged state are probably not going to be in use for evacuation immediately after an earthquake. Um, and even moderate uh, bridges that are moderately damaged will need to be inspected and perhaps you know, shored up or addressed in some way. Uh, we found another challenge. Where's Jahar? Okay. We found another challenge when we were implementing our bridge damage. Um, if you poke around in the background, which is not something that everyone does, but we like to do this to verify that things are working the way we expect, uh, we found that landslide, the, the, the occurrence of landslide had an impact on the bridge damage state. I'm sorry, the occurrence of liquefaction had an impact on the bridge damage state. Landslide made no difference at all. So it was not actually using the landslide to compute bridge damage. And we weren't sure whether that was a feature or a bug. So uh, it was unclear because if you read the methodology, it just talks about ground failure, but it never specifies whether it's liquefaction or landslide. So given that we didn't really know why it wasn't be co being computed, we wanted to make sure it was addressed because we can all visualize how a landslide can cause damage to a bridge. So what we did, rather than um, let it go, is we added a secondary thematic to all of our maps to reflect the potential for additional bridge damage caused by landslides, because we have quite a number of bridges that are exposed to landslide susceptibility. Um, we used the um, thresholds for ground failure for bridges that are implemented in uh, liquefaction, so we were trying to be consistent with the existing model and to identify bridges that were likely uh, to have additional damage, where additional damage was possible and where it was very, or it was unlikely. So we just wanted to make sure that we didn't um, overlook the potential for causing damage to the landslide. So I'm not sure if you can see this in the back. Um, basically, it tells, you, tells us how under dry conditions our bridges are damaged. And what we're looking at is the probability of at least moderate or greater damage, because we're really looking at those bridges that have potential to impact evacuation. Um, under dry conditions, it's not that bad. We have two bridges that have a high likelihood of moderate or extensive damage. And it turns out that one of those bridges is already scheduled for replacement in 2013, but both of them are outside of our planning zone. So under dry conditions, it really doesn't look that bad. When you look at this on a map, uh, we can see a couple of things. We've tried to highlight areas of where the roadways are of interest with blue arrows and where the bridges are of interest in pink arrows. And you can see that area of liquefaction in Morro Bay has a significant issue um, so those folks may have a little challenge getting out. But you can also see that there are some bridges on major roadways that have um, not insignificant probabilities of damage. And all of this information is then fed into really two minutes? 
All right, I gotta go faster. All this information is fed, I can't believe it, fed into the evacuation plan. Okay, so we'll skip over the next map um, and just point out that under wet conditions, what we find is we have a significant number of bridges that have additional potential damage due to landslide, which we didn't overlook. So we have about 10 bridges now that have potential for damage. Um, you can see there's a lot more errors on the map, but I don't have time to tell you about them. Uh, so uh, that's okay, I'm almost done. So in, with regard to how this information was fed into the plan, we fed the information on bridge and roadway damage to the folks doing the transportation modeling. Um, they used that in conjunction with their traffic models, with their transportation models, to look at how much evacuation times might increase uh, because of this uh, potential damage. And in some areas, the impact was minor, and you can imagine that those are the ones you know, to the, um, to the east where there wasn't a lot of damage, but in the areas of significant roadway and bridge damage, they were looking at at least a three to four hour increase in evacuation times, which is something that could be of concern in the post-earthquake environment. Um, uh, we can take questions at the end, but uh, Stunashenko from pg &E will be here tomorrow. You can also talk to him as well. Thank you. Thanks, so. Kevin. So what I wanted to talk about today was um, the earthquake, 2012 earthquake evergreen quake scenario, which is based on the Seattle Fault 6.7 magnitude earthquake, which is of course um, right in the area that we're sitting now. And um, National Preparedness um, Division uh, broached, asked us to kind of do some hazardous work for this. And um, they're essentially using this exercise is in 2012, and it will consist of a functional exercise, a logistics exercise, and a recovery tabletop. We have um, involvement from the federal agencies, county, state, tribal, and other private sector entities. The exercise is for the Puget Sound area, so this covers um, eight counties um, consisting of 17 cities, over 3.5 million people. So the earthquake scenarios that were done that we did model in Hazus, uh, the main shock is the Seattle Fault 6.7 earthquake. There were four additional, what we were kind of doing as aftershock scenarios that we modeled as well. Um, it's geologically, this, this kind of type of event would never happen with all of these aftershocks, but we wanted to try to get um, a greater um, involvement from the communities in the Puget Sound area. So some of the other faults that we focused on was uh, the Devil's Mountain Fault, most of these are in the 5.5 to 5.7 range. Uh, the Southwoodby Island Fault, that affects the city of Everett, which um, you'll see there's quite a bit of damages up there because that's where our, one of our main Boeing plants is. And then also um, the 5.7 Olympia Fault affecting our capital, city of Olympia, and the 5.5 Tacoma. So 
going back to the scenario document that's actually going to be used in the Evergreen Quake exercise, um, some of the things that they have included in that report are um, summary of the earthquake scenarios that were provided by USGS. We've generated maps from the hazards analysis which focus on damages to bridges and highways, utilities and critical facilities that they have included in that final scenario document and well as our global summary reports are included in that document as well. So ideally, this will be used in the exercise by the local communities to give them an idea of where their biggest problem areas are and maybe choose a specific area to focus on, saying just focusing on schools that are damaged. So um, as you've heard over the past, day or so. Um, we, we are definitely an earthquake country and we have a lot of earthquake hazards. We don't get them very often, but when we do, they can be pretty large. So um, starting at the north, um, this is about an hour, hour and a half north of, of Seattle, the yellow kind of blob. That um, is uh, the Devil's Mountain Fault. Going down to the blue fault, that's the Southwood Bay Island Fault, which is, goes by right by my house. And um, then you can see we have labeled on the map City of Seattle as well. And then we have the Olympia Faults and the Tacoma Faults. So hazards analysis was completed for all five of these earthquake scenarios. We were using hazards MR5 at the time. And we used, um, used the data set that Doug mentioned earlier, the updated HSIP data, which was used for the essential facilities. And we also had USGS generate shake maps for us for this exercise if they were not available. And of course, we can't. We didn't do cumulative, um, you know, effects from the from all the scenarios. So they were each done individually. Some damages for the 6.7 earthquake: um, 15 billion dollars in building damage, 90,000 buildings at least moderately damaged. We would have 160,000 people without electricity on day one. So you can see this is a pretty big event and this would be pretty problematic. Problematic for the area. So if you feel shaking, you should maybe get under your chair. So um, I'm just gonna scroll through some of these maps that we created um, for this exercise. Um, this is identifying major bridge uh, damage and any road and tunnel damage. We actually were not able to incorporate the, the liquefaction map, but we are rerunning all of this analysis in Hazus 2.0, so this will be updated. So we kind of um, mainly chose uh, the highway segments that we know have major issues, like uh, the viaduct, which is two blocks away. You don't want to be under there either if there's an earthquake, because that will come tumbling down on your head. And um, then um, just looking at building economic loss, one dot equals $1 million in damage. So this also expands, you know, out of the Seattle area and across, across Lake Washington into Bellevue as well. So we're looking at a pretty large area that could be impacted. Looking at the critical facilities in the area, um, lots of impacts here uh, for police, hospitals, fire, and EOCs. Um, and, and so this is going to be a pretty dire situation for the first um, 72 hours with, with many bridges being down and many of our essential facilities being not, not being functional. Uh, showing transportation facilities here that are out. Um, we have you know, a very big port system. We have many ferry systems as well. And so a lot of those um, facilities will, will, could be sustaining damage during this type of event. 
And also I'm showing in the back here the shaking intensity. So that gives you an idea of kind of the area of, that would get the highest sh shaking intensity. So here we'd be looking from severe, severe to violent shaking since we are pretty close to being on top of the fault. Um, this map shows the liquefaction data, which we haven't incorporated into HAZIS, but we will um, in our next analysis. And we have um, a lot of oil and gas pipeline um, that's coming from the north, as well as electrical transmission lines and water lines. So um, there's severe potential damage to those utilities that we, that we require. So that's just a, you know, kind of a little preview on the Seattle fault scenario. You can see more of those maps. They're actually in the map um, gallery. That's it. <laughs> and so looking more at some of the aftershock scenarios, um, you know, Devil's Mountain fault, that's more of a farming community. So we had about $165 million in damage. The Southwood B Island fault, again, that's where that Boeing facility is. So we're looking at higher damages around $1 billion. And then Tacoma and Olympia are, are smaller faults. And around Olympia, our capital, we could be getting 500, 500 million. So not only do we have the earthquake risk, of course, we could have a tsunami generated from that earthquake. And the green dot on the map is where we are right now. Um, so if you are outside and you feel shaking, I would run uphill to get away from the water that could be coming behind you. And um, so this is just one type of... Um, of tsunami, we also have a tsunami inundation as well from our Cascadia 9.0 earthquake. So there's many earthquakes to be had. Another risk that we have in the area is we have many dams and we have many levees. So during an earthquake, that's a, a large concern of, of dam failure or levee failure, and we would see quite a bit of flooding. So on this map, everything, um, the little yellow lines are, are rivers that do have levees on them that could potentially fail in an earthquake event. And many of our dams in the area <clears throat> are also earthen dams, and so they could be affected as well. So that's just another secondary concern that we need to be aware of. So some of the lessons learned on this analysis. <clears throat> Again, we didn't incorporate the liquefaction map, but we're fixing that now. Um, the other... The other issue is that um, this was presented to the um, communities that are involved in this exercise, and some of them wanted higher magnitudes, and they wanted the most damage. So um, we, we did have to make some adjustments um, for the Seattle or the Southwood B Island Fault. We increased that from a 5.7 to a 7.4, so obviously that's going to give quite a bit higher damages. Um, and we want to make all of this data available to the communities. Um, anybody here, we're perfectly willing to share any of this data as well. And um, also in the exercise, secondary hazards weren't incorporated. So looking at tsunami or levee failure or anything like that, they weren't incorporated. And that's something that would be helpful to look at in the future because we do have so many dams and levees. So I also wanted to, you know, not only brief you on that, but take this opportunity to tell you what's going on in Region 10. I'm the, the lone Region 10 presenter, so um, I wanted to uh, let everybody know what we're doing in the region and, and how we can help you and, you know, get some training on HAZUS and get more informed as well. So one thing that we're doing, um, I mentioned the Cascadia Subduction Zone. We are... Um, doing some hazardous runs for that, focusing on Washington and Oregon, which is going to be included in a Cascadia subduction zone operational plan, and that's um, being, being done here at the region. 
We've also, um, in the re within the region, we're doing a, kind of a monthly Hazus Day, and, and the goal of that is really to try to get all of us in the region that, that do GIS to really get them up to speed on, on Hazus, so if we do have an event, they can run it. And we're also trying to get a good inventory of all of the Hazus models. We have many Hazus models, you know, that were done in MR3 and MR4, and we're trying to update them all to 2.0. And we also have many um, general building stock updates as well. Um, our contractor, STAR, has done about seven counties for us in Washington and Washington, Oregon, and we have done quite a bit as well. So trying to get all of that updated and really and share that with the state and the locals as well, so we're all working off the same kind of data set. Um, Doug mentioned our erupt viewer. That's our flex viewer here at the region. We're trying to um, essentially get hazards I, various hazardous analyses ran to put that in the erupt viewer. So if we do have an event, that's something we can look at right away and maybe get an idea of where we do need to focus on evacuations or where we need to focus on providing food and water. And following along with that same that same thought, we've developed run cards at the region, which for are for our reg regional administrator and our upper management. And this gives them an idea of on a specific event, for instance, the Seattle fault, what kind of damages they would be seeing, how many people are displaced, how many people are without power. So this, again, gives them a first look at what we could potentially be seeing in that event. And we're trying to also expand that to include, to include other events. We have about five earthquake events in the region and, and one flood event that's included in these run cards, but trying to expand that and that'll just give all of us in response a head start on when this disaster does happen. And actually, we're actually going to Kodiak, Alaska next week um, to work with them on a multi-hazard risk assessment, um, focusing on earthquake, doing a level two earthquake analysis and some tsunami work as well. I wanted to mention the Hazus user groups. We're having a session Friday, I think that's the right time, Friday morning, and um, I encourage everybody here to, to attend that, learn how you can you know, develop your own Hazus user group. And um, we have a Washington Hazus user group, and we, it's kind of been lagging for a bit, but I'm trying to get that started back up again. And we also have a newly formed Idaho Hazus user group. Brian McDaniel's not here, but there's his contact information. And like I said, we really want to try and share all of our data with everybody. So we're working on the, the same data set. And we're also, I think around October, we're going to provide some webinars to mainly um, people that don't use Hazus much or other emergency managers and planners with local communities to show them how they can use Hazus, how they can incorporate in their mitigation plan and in their um, emergency management arena. So um, that is coming up. I'm hoping to work with Kevin to get a Hazus flood course out to the region. So um, let, definitely let me know if you have any training requests. Um, even if we can't get an EMI training request, we do have opportunity at the region to maybe provide some local training for you as well. So um, there's my contact information. My email's changing because um, I just got married, um, which is why you're hearing Durst and Stone. But um, let me know if you do have any questions, and I, I look forward to, to meeting everybody and um, trying to get as, as much hazardous work as we can get done in Region 10. Thanks.
so that the folks doing the liquefaction landslide hazard mapping knew what the categories were that Hazus wanted to see. Um, and so they were very careful to make sure that they could get the information into those categories. And it's a bit of a challenge because the emergency planning zone is both um, county land and also within the plant. That's why if you saw the list of PG geosciences folks' names, all of them had to provide input on how, how to re really reflect a liquefaction landslide on the roadways in the plant. Um, we wanted to do countywide liquefaction landslide. There's no data available for that particular county to let us do that. Um, so if you, these guys did strip maps on all of the roads. So we gave them road base and they did strip maps for us to make sure that we were getting what we needed for the study. So there's a lot of interaction up front uh, with the, um, the geotechnical contractor to make sure what they gave is right in. I'm telling you, if you have the opportunity to do that, work with them up front because it's a lot easier for them to build it into the right categories and for you to try to figure it out later. Other questions? Kelly, how did you come up with 6.7 magnitude for Seattle Quake? Was it for probability or what? That was chosen by the exercise committee. Um, I know Gala. I don't know if you have any other input. Other questions? Oh, okay, hold on a second. So we just 